BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. The largest river restoration in U.S. history will proceed along the Klamath in 2023. That's under a new agreement announced yesterday. KQED science reporter Danielle Venton has details. The Klamath River flows more than 250 miles from south-central Oregon to the Pacific Ocean in northern California. It's used by tribes, farmers, fishers, and struggling populations of Chinook, coho, steelhead, and other fish. Four hydroelectric dams along the river cut flow and block passage of fish upstream. This summer, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission threw a wrench in the gears of an agreement, decades in the making, to remove the dams. Key stakeholders have announced a new agreement that solves this problem. The dam's operator, Berkshire Hathaway-owned Pacificor will transfer responsibility for the dams to California, Oregon, and a nonprofit set up for the project. This gets around the commission's concern that money could run out mid-removal. Governor Gavin Newsom thanked Oregon's governor, the Yurok and Karuk tribal leadership, and Pacificor on what he said was a remarkable day. Join together with a collective vision to right some wrongs, to address some of our historic mistakes and to set a tone and tenor to frame a much brighter future for generations to come. Yurok Chairman Joseph L. James said this dam removal signaled a new era for California tribes, helping traditions thrive along with the return of salmon. To me, this is who we are, to have a free-flowing river, just as those have come before us, and here now for those generations to come. This is a place and time for our prayers, our song, our dances, our ceremonies will continue to move more with water, more fish, and our ecosystem will continue to heal to provide substance to all of us. The dams are projected to be down in 2023. In a statement, Congressman Doug LaMalfa, who represents Siskiyou County, said that he would continue to oppose the dam removal, saying the dams were good for the power grid and the local economy. For the California Report, I'm Danielle Venton. California's most populated county could be headed for a three-week lockdown. Yesterday, officials in Los Angeles County imposed new restrictions on businesses after daily confirmed coronavirus cases more than doubled in the last two weeks to nearly 3,000. Hospitalizations there are up 30 percent. 
County officials are preparing to move forward with a mandatory curfew from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. if coronavirus cases keep spiking. It would apply to all but essential workers. A mandatory three-week lockdown could also come into effect if cases top 4,000 per day. Well, child care providers who care for some of the state's neediest families are warning that the system is about to collapse if they don't get help. KQED's Katie Orr says their union has filed an unfair labor practice complaint against the state. Providers who accept families receiving state subsidies for care were already working on thin financial margins. But the newly formed union representing these providers says the pandemic is further destabilizing the system. Between increased cleaning costs, unexpected COVID-related shutdowns, and distance learning expenses, providers like Charlotte Neal of Sacramento say they're exhausted. We're sanitizing our homes like operating rooms. We're upgrading our Wi-Fi so kids can do distance learning and can stay connected. And we're helping these precious little children deal with the stress, the trauma of the scary times that we are living in. The union says nearly 6,000 child care centers have closed since the pandemic started, leaving more than 60,000 kids without access to care. Chairperson Max Arias says the union has filed a labor complaint in an attempt to make the state pay attention. With thousands of child care centers already closed and more closing every week, we are at the breaking point. The state can no longer ignore the child care crisis. We demand the state leaders protect the children and families who are counting on child care before the system collapses. The union is calling on the state to increase reimbursement rates for providers caring for children doing distance learning. It also wants the state to fully support providers who must shut down after a possible COVID exposure. And it wants the state to follow through on its promise to reimburse fees for families affected by the pandemic. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. A scathing new report from the state auditor out yesterday says state agencies squandered, as in just lost, billions of dollars from bonds that were supposed to go towards affordable housing. KQED's Raquel Maria Dillon has more. The audit found that a division of the state treasurer's office, called the Debt Limit Allocation Committee, mismanaged $2.7 billion in bonds, which were never issued. That means developers missed out on state money that could have helped finance low-income housing units because the deadline slipped by. The audit noted that four different state agencies, each with different goals and standards, are tasked with developing affordable housing and approving financing for builders. The audit also called out cities that haven't streamlined the approval process for low-income housing development and have parking requirements and limits on density. For the California Report, I'm Raquel Maria Dillon. In this month's election, California voters rejected Prop 16, the ballot measure that would have reinstated affirmative action in public institutions and government contracts. That's despite polling this summer that showed most Californians think racial inequality is a major issue. The California Report has been following Prop 16 through a collaboration with the CalMatters Student Journalism Network. Sacramento State Junior Kayleen Carter previously reported on students who are working to bridge long-term equity gaps on their campuses, students who'd hoped Prop 16 could bolster their efforts. Io Banjo co-chairs the Pan-African Student Association, a collaboration of Black and Pan-African student groups across the University of California system. Banjo is a senior at UC Santa Cruz, 
where less than 5% of the student body is Black. He says he and other students he's talked to were confused by the outcome of Prop 16. Folks were feeling very hurt by what we call a progressive state not being able to pass a, a progressive bill that could actually lead the way for the rest of the nation. He also thinks that the measure suffered from misleading framing. Making it seem as if universities or other entities within California are going to be giving out free handouts, when in reality, it's just about measuring and bringing justice to the racial groups that have been disaffected by all the discriminatory policies that have affected our communities for generations. When people don't step up to find solutions to equity gaps in higher ed, students end up shouldering a lot of the effort, Banjo says. The fact that we as students have to do so much to address these histories of of social inequities that other folks get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do (laughs) is kind of sad. Black students are burnt out right now, Banjo says. And he thinks they should use the failure of Prop 16 as a chance to step back and reassess how they can make the most impact in their communities. For Banjo, this includes a Black research grant he's helped develop with the Pan-African Student Association. The grant would pay Black students to research how to better recruit and retain other students just like them. I do hope that this Black research grant will serve as a model for how universities could respond to not just the failure of Prop 16, but also to institutionalizing a Black agenda for their campuses and for their students who attend their campuses. We want universities to become competitive and we want universities to be incentivized to want to be competitive when it comes to the resources that they offer to students of color. The grant is poised to be implemented UC-wide, but Banjo and his peers are still waiting for funding approval from the University Office of the President. For The California Report, I'm Kayleen Carter from Sacramento. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. The CEOs of Twitter and Facebook testified on Capitol Hill again yesterday about their efforts to moderate content. KQED's Rachel Myro reports they walked a fine line aimed at ensuring lawmakers in D.C. don't try to actually regulate the industry. One senator on the Judiciary Committee likened the hearing to an attempt to work the refs of Silicon Valley's biggest social media platforms. GOP lawmakers railed against Facebook and Twitter labeling or deleting misinformation posted by conservatives, most especially President Trump. Democratic lawmakers pressed the CEOs to disprove media reports they're not doing enough to stop incendiary lies about the election and the pandemic. We are facing something that feels impossible. 
Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. We need to make policies so that people feel safe and they feel free to express themselves, to minimize threats of abuse, of harassment, of misleading information, of organized campaigns to artificially amplify or influence a particular conversation. But if there's bipartisan agreement that social media is a wild west in desperate need of a regulatory crackdown, there is no agreement between the parties about how to do it and when. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro in Menlo Park. Well, amid all the scrutiny, Twitter has a new head of security. He's known as Mudge, and Reuters correspondent Joe Men joins me now with more. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. It's good to have you on the show. So, Joe, who exactly is Mudge? Well, the way multiple people have described it to me is that Twitter is a possibly unmanageable security problem. But if anybody can do it, Mudge can. Mudge is a very unusual person in the security world. Uh, his real name is Peter Zatko. His most prestigious previous job was running cybersecurity grant making at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the, the folks that brought you the Internet in the first place. But in his spare time, he was at the first shared hackerspace, which was called The Loft in Boston. And in 1998, he and six other members of The Loft testified before Congress that any one of them could bring down the Internet in half an hour. And this sort of was a big awakening in the federal government that it's a national security issue. And this is sort of an iconic moment for people who follow this beat as closely as you do. And he doesn't look the part of a, of a, of a tech bro, especially in that moment, which is posted to his Twitter page. Right. So back then... You know, he looked like a you know a heavy metal guitarist with extremely you know with very very long hair and was was into sort of like the hacker shtick, but he was also super super smart and you know was sort of welcomed into the national security establishment as well because they were desperate to understand the hacker world and he played this go-between uh, which is which is pretty unusual where like hackers trust him trusted him then uh, trust him now and you know the White House trusted him then and, and, and trust him, well, if not now, then in the Obama administration. So he has navigated these multiple worlds very carefully. Well, do you think he's got a good shot at tackling this? I mean, you've talked to an array of people about this. Well, I mean, it's early days. I mean, Mudge can do pretty much whatever he wants, right? Um, and he was attracted by a couple of things. One is Twitter's mission statement to spread and improve the quality of public conversation. That's the kind of like brass tacks moral imperative that Mudge and some of these other old school hackers really care about. And the other is that he said Twitter's willing to take risks. It's not going to wait for a bunch of pointy heads in a university to figure out, you know, what do you do about algorithmic bias and machine learning? They're going to try and figure it out themselves because they feel like they have to. You know, they've gotten in a lot of trouble for being laissez-faire, and they're not going to let everything ride anymore. So he's got, he's got kind of free reign to, to play around. All right. Thank you so much, Joe. Okay. Take care. That was Reuters correspondent Joe Men. And that is the California Report for this Wednesday, November 18th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt, 
futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at schmidtfutures.com. And hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!